We are not alternative anymore. It's a quickly evolving industry. And, of course, amazing opportunities. We look at the industry and its topics. Things are changing very quickly. What is that market setup going to look like? It's very much about charging experience. Going to much more mature business. And, of course, new revenue streams. Those companies will either have to improve or they'll just die. This is the Electric Avenue Podcast. Hello and welcome to Electric Avenue, podcast about the electric vehicle revolution and the new energy economy as seen from our perspective out here in Central and Eastern Europe. I'm your host, Aaron Fishbone, Public Policy Director at Greenway, based in Bratislava, Slovakia. You know, on this show, we look at all aspects of the electric vehicle charging infrastructure, industry, and experience. We look at hardware and software, we look at finance and investment, we look at policy and regulatory developments, and also EV driver experiences, really covering a full range of uh, of what we could talk about in this field. And electric vehicles are rightly understood to be far less energy intensive and far more climate friendly than comparable combustion engine vehicles from well to wheel. And transport remains a huge contributor to global greenhouse gas emissions. In the European Union alone, it's about one quarter of all emissions come from road transport. EV charging also has an incredible power and a potential to integrate renewable energy resources into the grid and balance loads on our electricity grid as well, so it's a key and emerging part of energy policy as well. So for those reasons, electric vehicle policy is really a central and increasingly central part of climate policy. And as Europe is working to meet its commitments to the Paris Climate Accord and even update its targets, update its so-called nationally determined contribution right now by reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels, electric vehicle policy and charging infrastructure policy has a huge role to play, which is also why this policy and this area is considered a flagship for investment under the European Recovery and Reinvestment Plan, as we discussed in the last episode. And a lot of this looking at that policy is taking place in Brussels right now. So to discuss this, I'm joined by our special guest. Yeah, I have switched on mine as well. Julia Poliskanova, Senior Director of Vehicles and E-Mobility at the NGO Transport and Environment based in Brussels, to translate what all of this means for our industry. Julia, we're delighted to have you here. Hello and welcome. Hello. Hi, Aaron. Thanks again for having me on the show. What a great time to have a discussion in the hot debate of this all here in Brussels. Seriously, seriously. I know. And you're so busy these days. So thank you for making the time. Just quickly. I mean, Julia has been recently appointed to the board of a battery manufacturing company. So it's actually a company in the lithium space. So they're producing um, zero carbon sustainable lithium. But indeed, it's a core part of the future battery supply chain. So indeed, I joined them as an informal advisor, uh, given of how important that industry actually is for the EV success in Europe. Oh, totally. Well, that's such an interesting uh, appointment. I mean, it really rounds out your profile a bit, right? I mean, you're working in the private sector as well. Indeed, indeed. So it's a non-remunerated advisory role for the company, but I think it still gives me, but also us at TNE, a really good glimpse, you know, what it is to actually set up a business in this space, rather than only talking about policies all the time, which we love. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's good. It's good. It certainly adds to the perspective, I bet. 
Nice. Well, again, you were testifying before the European Parliament the other day at a hearing from the Tran Committee. So all of this is in addition to your regular job at TNE advancing, uh, you know, the, the energy transition. Again, it's wonderful to have you here. So for new listeners, Julia's been on this show at least twice before. Last year, we talked about the European Union's e-mobility agenda when it was really much more nascent. Um, and before that, we talked about, or after that, we talked about the European parliamentary elections and why those would matter to people who care about electric vehicle development. Development uh, and the e-mobility ecosystem. And so you can find those episodes as well as our entire library of the last 21 plus episodes uh, at any podcast platform that you prefer. Uh, you just search for Electric Avenue Podcast on your preferred podcast platform and you'll find all of our back episodes there. So please go check them out. I guess our last discussion now brings us directly to today's discussion because over the coming months, uh, the European Parliament is going to be looking at a whole new set of laws under the so-called Fit for 55 package. And, you know, Julia, you and I were last talking about the European Parliament and what that might mean for e-mobility policy of those elections. And so what have they meant? And is the current parliament delivering on the things we talked about last time? Um, so I think it might be a little bit early uh, still to talk about the parliament effect here, because we're still at the stage of the initial legislative proposals, right? Basically, it means that it's the European Commission and its civil servant, the experts there that are working on the proposals, which will very soon, so this June, come to the European Parliament as a package. We hope that the parliament will be more progressive, more ambitious this side round. There's certainly still uh, parties on the right side, which still defend the business, business as usual in the old industry, but we have seen uh, so much change in the last months. Even car makers are now committing to 100% electric, so no one really has an excuse anymore. Exactly. Okay, so let's let's back up now. This so-called Fit for 55 package that we're here to discuss under the European Green Deal. So what does the name Fit for 55 refer to? Yes, great question. It's uh, one of these EU names that you need to be an insider to actually comprehend what it means, right? Well, that's why you're here to help us translate this into things that, you know, people outside of Brussels can understand and digest. Absolutely. Uh, ultimately, what this refers to is that back when the new European Commission took office, they promised uh, under the European Green Deal momentum to up Europe's targets to reduce CO2 emissions. And the key milestone in this, alongside a reaching climate, uh, climate agreement in long term, is actually to increase our ambition to 2030. So up until today, the target Europe set itself was 40% reduction in CO2 emissions to 2030. And now we're upping this up to 55% reduction. So fit for 55 basically means laws fit for the new higher ambition, 55% reduction. I do want to add here, though, yesterday there was a preliminary agreement on this, actually, with, with the European Parliament, who wanted more than 55. And actually, the latest number they settled on is 57%. So we might see this renamed into fit for 57. So watch out for that. <laughs> I'm not going to roll off the tongue quite as easily, but I mean, that would be great in the sense that it means that the ambition is higher. And this is now emissions reductions across all sectors, right? Absolutely. It's not just focused on automotive or road transport or things like that. No, no. So the package, uh, so this whole package fit for 55 coming in June ultimately includes every major sector in the economy that we need for the wider ambition in, in 2030. So it covers things like buildings, energy supply, so to have more renewables, for example, also transport, of course, not just cars, uh, but also aviation and shipping, for example. It also covers things such as agriculture and forestry. So it's really a wide range of laws being all reviewed in order to meet a higher target by 2030. 
that's great. And I guess we're going to hear lots of different sides of this talking about how in, in different impact industries are going to be impacted and different member states are going to be impacted. And so it's the tough negotiations that are going to be had to figure out where do we ultimately end up in terms of the ambition, in terms of the policy. Absolutely. And it actually, the member states are very keen to provide their feedback early, right? So the European countries really want the commission to know what they want to see in the package. And there's actually an additional summit, an additional meeting being set up in May specifically to try and shape the proposals coming out in June. So it's really, really super important political discussions that are ahead of us in the coming months. No, well, that's exciting. I mean, and it's also a lot to be watching. Now, because this package is so broad, uh, this fit for 55 or maybe fit for 57 soon, or as you just said, it covers a lot more than just road transport and just uh, transport related emissions. But there are some of the bills specifically that are very much core to regulating the EV charging infrastructure and the electric vehicle segment. So those are the ones I want to focus on today because that's what our podcast is about. Uh, just to name them quickly, they have the Alternative Fuels Infrastructure Directive. You have the new vehicle CO2 standards. You have the Renewable Energy Directive, and you have the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. Is that correct, or are there other ones that are, let's say, really important for our sector that listeners uh, you know, interested in this topic might want to know about that are falling under this package? So yeah, there's a number a number of other ones. I can just say I, I loved how you were setting up these four options like it's a quiz. Which yeah. one it's going to be? Is it outfit? Totally. Is it your two standards? No, but on, on a serious note, uh, there are also uh, a few big pieces around the wider carbon ambition. The main one being the emissions trading system or the ETS, which is basically European cap and trade system across all sectors. And at the moment, it uh, requires uh, all industry, heavy industry, utilities, uh, you name it, to reduce their CO2 emissions in line with the European cap. Um, and there are, at the moment, discussions to actually include road transport, uh, so cars and trucks, into that, as well as buildings. And that is important because that ultimately means that the fuel supply will be covered by carbon regulations, uh, meaning that the fuel price will grow for people. And whether or not it's a good idea, we can debate today. We don't think so. We think that other measures are more effective. But that is part of the package on the table today. So what you're saying is one of the debates right now is whether road transport should be covered under the emissions trading scheme. And one reason why you're opposed to it is because it's, I mean, it's effectively quite regressive. It's putting the additional cost of refueling of regular combustion engine vehicles onto people who are driving those vehicles. Therefore, you know, people low income who might not be able to afford it as easily. Exactly, exactly. And what's important to understand is that with high fuel prices for everyone, you're ultimately targeting those that still today can't afford to go and buy an electric car, right? It's it's too early for people to make the switch. The alternatives are not yet there. So you're penalizing them. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have things like vehicle CO2 standards, which target new market, people who buy new cars, companies, leasing, just people who can afford new cars. So it's important that to get the timeline right. First, you cover the new market. And when you have enough of these cars and they're affordable, then you cover the wider market. So you put everyone into the ETS because potentially after 2030, with lots of cheap electric cars, you need a carbon price. Right. But Julia, that sounds so reasonable and so obvious and logical. Why would people be suggesting that transport should be under the ETS then? One answer here shortly, the car industry. Uh, the car industry, the supply industry as well, they like the idea because they know very well that putting road transport into the ETS means that they will have less pressure to electrify and to reduce emissions under the car CO2 standards. So for them, it's a bit of a regulatory holidays. 
<laughs> and they're the ones who need a regulatory holiday, clearly. Well, okay, so then let's talk about the CO2 standards. That was a, a good segue then. Can you tell us what is the status now and what is under discussion? Yeah, so the European Vehicle CO2 Standards and what we have on the table now is revision of the car and van CO2 standards, really importantly, trucks will come next year. So those of you interested in electric trucks, not yet, the time will come. Uh, but electric cars and vans, uh, right now we have standards in place for 2025 and 2030. But they are at the moment so outdated, given the really quick pace of investments and the market, the electric vehicle market growing in Europe, that they're basically laughable. Which is interesting, though, just a quick, quick note, because I mean, they only came into force last year, right? I mean, I remember a year and a half ago, we were discussing about how to best push for these standards, right? Indeed, they did. But you know, at the time in 2018, when we were discussing them, the electric vehicle market was barely at 2%. Mm. So so saying having 15% EV sales, electric car sales in 2025 seemed okay. Today, where we sit literally in the first quarter of 2021, electric car sales in Europe are at around 13%. So that makes 2025 target, which is, by the way, in place until 2029, importantly, really, really not up for scratch and, and obsolete. And we have so much investment happening in Europe into batteries, the charging providers and so forth. So the ultimate priority it really is to increase the ambition in the 2020s uh, so that we really push the supply side. Because the only way to get more investments and more electric cars on the market across Europe are the vehicle CO2 standards. That's what regulates the supply. Everything else uh, cannot help us help us there. So that's probably one of the big issues on the table. The other big topic, hot topic in Europe, is whether or not Europe should set an end date to end the game for internal combustion engines and go 100% electric. And there we have at least 10 European countries that want to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a number of car makers. At the beginning of this year, there was an announcement every day, uh, Volvo cars, uh, GM, Ford Europe, Jaguar Land Rover and others voluntarily saying they'll go to 100% electric. So from our side, it's really important that now we set that date so it's clear for everyone where we're going and we can start preparing for that. That makes sense in the sense of creating predictability and clarity on deadlines and whatnot. But are these, are the CO2 standards and then and ultimately an end date for the sale of new combustion engine vehicles, are these two policy objectives in conflict with each other or are they in alignment with each other? No, no, they're absolutely aligned with each other. In fact, we need stricter CO2 standards because they will push more electric vehicles. Today, CO2 standards are not driving efficient uh, engines, efficient diesels or petrols. Today, where we are, they're driving electric cars. And therefore, the higher CO2 standards means that we quicker have investments into them. That means that we get electric cars cheaper and more in Europe so we can go 100%, right? We can't just have uh, uh, no electric vehicles one year and then next year we go 100%, right? It's a bit like saying, well, I want to quit smoking in 2030, but up until 2030, I will be smoking two packs a day. That doesn't work like that. We have to start now to be where we want to be in 2030 or 2035. Right. No, I was just, I was just thinking that if the end date was coming and it was known, I mean, you know, car manufacturers are setting up their, you know, their factories and their production lines years in advance. And so if they knew that it was coming in 2030, let's say, they would start already in, by 2025, be preparing for that, you know, no more combustion engine future already. And so are further tightening of CO2 standards necessary 
if the end date is known. So if the end date is 2030, you're right. But that's not what's in the political debate. In the political debate, the end date is somewhere between 2035 and 2040. And that's why a lot of analysis we see, for example, by Bloomberg, uh, by others, is to say that where we are today, at still very low percentage of electric vehicle sales, and where we want to be in 2035, can't just be left to the market. The market itself won't get there. You need to keep standards in 2025 and 2030 to push the investments and push the supply chain importantly it's not just about car makers it's about the entire supply chain having a signal and getting there not from zero to hundred but doing this uh, in a way which is you know 30 percent 70 percent and then 100 so it's a kind of comprehensible transition everyone's on board rather than a disruption where last minute the car industry just ditches the engine and goes for electric that's not good for the jobs for example or the social transition in europe So with all of these investments by, you know, major OEMs going electric and, you know, increasingly electric and all of their claims that they're going to stop producing combustion engine vehicles, how do they feel about the CO2 standards tightening? I mean, is it aligned then with the direction they're going and so they're supportive of it? So some do. Some, well, I think some of them just know that it's happening, right? And the commission already said they'll up the 2030 target. Uh, many like Volkswagen, Stellantis more recently and others already upped their own EV announcements. I think the interesting thing to point out here, what the car industry wants is to have a sort of uh, mandatory conditionality. If the CO2 standards increase, which is very likely, we also have to make it conditional upon the ramp up of the charging infrastructure. So align it to the availability of charging infrastructure. Uh, that's problematic. Problematic for many reasons. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, the numbers that the car industry gives are, are really, uh, well, ridiculous, if I may. They're just kind of taken from the air and don't match our analysis. How many public charge stations you need? You mean the six million number? Exactly. So we, you know, a commission and, and us said that for the Green Deal, for the European Green Deal, so for more ambition, we need 1 million public charge points in 2025 and 3 million in 2030. And then the car industry agreed with that. We sent a joint letter. Uh, and then they came and said a few weeks later, well, actually, we need 6 million. So, you know, setting these unrealistic objectives and then making CO2 standards conditional upon them is for us really not justified. But also, just to stress, so AFIT, it only covers public charging, right? So in on motorways and cities and so forth. But the vast majority of charging will be happening in private space, home, work, semi-public things like supermarkets, which are not fully covered by AFIT. So it doesn't really make sense to align uh, a part of the infrastructure puzzle with the entire European EV policy. That again, for us, that's not appropriate. Okay, but this, this notion of conditionality, they're saying that unless there are enough charging stations publicly available, charging stations, because that's the context of the conversation, then you should not tighten the CO2 standards. Is that correct? Indeed, indeed. And on top of that, what is enough uh, has been, in our view, really inflated to way more what's enough. Uh, so it's a bit of a way out, uh, maybe an excuse to then not increase or not agree to the increase of the CO2 standards. Um, I, would, I would add, however, I think it's very fair to say that charging infrastructure has to really, really increase in Europe. We need to do better and more on all sides. We're not questioning that at all. At the moment, electric car sales actually are increasing faster than charging infrastructure ramp up. And that's why within the infrastructure law, which is also part of the June package and will be reviewed, it's really paramount.
around to us that this time round we learn from past mistakes and we set a strong, not a directive, a regulation. So we directly implement it and we make sure that every member state from east to west to south to north has a binding target on the amount of coverage of discharge points that they have to provide. And it's even more important in, in Central and Eastern European countries from what we see than Western European countries. Because in Western European countries, the vehicles are really there and governments understand this. In Central and Eastern European countries, governments are still behind. And we really need this European hook or nudge on them to start thinking about it early to provide uh, this infrastructure enough for first new car drivers, but also second-hand drivers, which will be also a big part of the EV market in those countries. Okay, so a whole lot of questions came up in what you've just said. I mean, it's really important stuff. So first is, can you just clarify for listeners, what is the difference between uh, a directive, where it's currently the Alternative Fuels Infrastructure Directive, and if it were to be a regulation? So the directive at European level uh, sets minimum requirements, which member states or countries themselves then take time to implement as they see fit into their national laws. What it very importantly means is that if things are going too slowly or not done, the process to actually push the member state to do so is incredibly lengthy and requires going via the European Court of Justice and, and you know, 10 years of court cases. So it's not a direct implementation of European requirements. It's an implementation via a few hoops, most notably via national legislation. Transposition. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Transposition. If that's the easier word for everyone, I'm happy to use that word indeed. <laughs> Probably not, but, uh, you know, we can... A little bit of inside baseball, yeah. (laughs) The implementation, the transposition of this can take time and it goes through national law, which is an additional time lag. In the case of a regulation, the provisions as agreed in the European law directly apply to countries. And more importantly, if the member state does not implement or enforce rules as required, there is a direct final penalty mechanism. So they're directly liable for that. It's much stronger. Basically, it's much more enforced. To give you a really good example, uh, the best regulation we know to date is actually uh, the vehicle CO2 standards. And you all saw this in January last year. The day the regulation came into force in January 2020, electric car sales just literally soared up. That's what the regulation does. It's it's effective from day one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the binding targets you talked about, if there are binding targets for, I presume you're saying publicly accessible charging infrastructure in an upcoming regulation, what might that look like and where might those where might they be? those chargers that are required? Well, there are many ways to go about it. One way to go, which might be more acceptable to the member states, is to simply give them each a target. Uh, At the moment, we're only looking at the targets based on the new EV market, but I think it's important to consider that in Central Eastern European countries, there's also second-hand markets, so probably numbers have to be higher. But so we just give them the number. Number of charging stations? Yes, exactly. So you give them the number of charging stations that they need to uh, build. Obviously, within that, you can be more granular and you can say, if you build a slow one, it counts as one. If you build a faster one, it counts as two. So you still can do smart weighting within that. So then it's for the member state to decide where they would be based on the circumstances. That's one way. Um, And that, as I say, would be probably more politically acceptable for countries because last time around in 2014, we already tried to give member states binding targets and we failed. So we have to keep that in mind. It's important that, you know, what we talk and do is actually ultimately 
at the end of the day is acceptable across Europe. The other way to do it is actually instead of uh, just giving them one number to look indeed at the needs across Europe. So we will need to cover all European roads, right? Especially all our motorways. So we say, look, every 60 kilometers there should be um, high power charging. Or you look in, in cities and you say, look, ultimately you will need to have uh, charging hubs, for example, for things like um, taxi, right? Taxis and Ubers. You would also need to have uh, more, much more public charging in those cities, especially where there's not much private housing, right? So people living in multi-apartment will need to have charging near them to be able for them to make the switch. So that's another way to go about it. So looking at the specific urban, suburban and, and motorway areas and defining conditions, binding conditions on, on that. And I know that the commission at the moment is considering both routes and deciding which one to propose in June. And how do they come to a decision on those topics? <laughs> that's, that's a very good question. It starts with people who know their staff who are in charge of this. In the case of AFIT, it will be uh, basically the transport department of the commission. So the experts working there will be carrying out impact assessments, analysis, talking to many experts, uh, carrying out their own studies to establish what is best. Once that has been done, and we are at the stage where it's almost done, so somewhere towards the end of April, that more analytical and policy development stage is done, then the set of proposals goes to the political level. So it goes to all commissioners in the commission, and then it becomes much more political discussion and host trading, what's acceptable, what's not. And sometimes, uh, you know, the, the smart analytical proposals get changed in this stage. And at that point, it's all about political pressure. Got it. Okay, so on these binding targets. I mean, Transport and Environment did come out with a press release with numbers uh, and was co-spun by the automotive lobby at SEA and also by the European Consumer Organization. And it identified numbers of chargers that should be in each member state in 2025 and 2030 in order to meet the commission's stated goal of 1 million and then 3 million public charging stations. But it did seem to me and some of my colleagues that the numbers for this region were unfortunately too low because, you know, it was really based on current state of market development. And so the numbers for the highest performing markets were already quite high. And the numbers for the lowest performing markets, like in our region, were, we felt, undercounted because the market here is underdeveloped. These governments are slower to act and the market is at a much earlier stage of development. There's far less electric vehicle penetration here. But in order to meet the ambition that's being stated, and a lot of the investment and a lot of the pressure does need to be on those regions where the market is underdeveloped. Is there a way to account for that in this process? Mm. Yeah, thanks. I, I take your point, Aaron. And I think you are right. I think maybe just to stress it, maybe in, uh, in defense of this, this does set just the minimum, the minimum requirements, right? And I think there are other provisions and ways within the regulation to make them more. You can set the minimum level based on the EV market, which is at the moment indeed slower in these countries than others. And on top of that, you can set additional provisions, for example, in urban areas, on 10T, so on the European, trans-European roads and things like that, that would add on top of those minimum numbers. I would just say here that when it comes to Central and Eastern European countries, the reality is a lot of the fleet there and sales there are secondhand. So maybe rather than looking at the new market there, which makes sense for Western Europe, maybe we should be looking rather at the fleet 
uh, in those countries because that's more appropriate. So we actually do not disadvantage the second-hand EV buyers from not being able to access charging where it's it's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean we'll 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 talk offline, of course, about you know developing further ideas in this regard. But I do think in general, you know, as we look at all of these policy instruments, it's important to think about. I don't, you don't need me to tell you this, but nonetheless, to not lock in the two-speed Europe based upon current conditions, right? In some cases, the market is very well functioning and you know and very developed and. EV, new EV sales are very high and market penetration is very high. In other cases, the market is very low. There's many fewer charging stations and the EV penetration is much, much lower. I agree. And those yeah. are the regions that need the, the most support and generally to be pulled into the rest of Europe when it comes to the EV charging uh, infrastructure and EV driving sectors. I, I agree. And just to say maybe very quickly, look, I myself come from Latvia, so you, you don't have to convince me. Exactly. You don't need me to tell you I'm a, I'm a transplant. <laughs> but I, I, I do understand and I, I agree. I think it's just about indeed working it out in terms of what works for the European legislation, because the reality is that today it's only the new market, the new sales where the European Commission have legal competences. Everything about the existing market has to do with the member states. Uh, so we need to design it. However, on the actual idea of getting rid of two-speed Europe is crucial and important. And I think going to the new technologies like electric vehicles, we have an opportunity to actually change this. Exactly. And I mean, I think, you know, at some level that's very well understood, right? That's why recharging and refueling infrastructure is a flagship under the recovery plan. Nonetheless, I mean, actually then doing it and making sure that the supporting documents and methodologies and calculations around deployments and targets and whatnot then further reflect that and are then implemented. That's, you know, a whole nother body of work. And we just need to keep it constantly in mind. Look, I know we're running out of time. We could talk about this for many days. We didn't even talk about the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. We didn't really talk much about 10T or even the Renewable Energies Directive. But like I said, we're basically out of time. This has been a great discussion. But you did say one thing I wanted to touch on real quickly before, which is about you know making sure that it's a just and an equitable transition. And so this issue of what will be the jobs and employment impact of this mass switch to electric vehicles is something that keeps coming up. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really crucial topic for Europe, but also beyond that. Similar conversations actually happening in the US, for example. I think what's important to understand is that we need to be looking at jobs. We can be looking at jobs at different levels. I would maybe highlight at least two. First, we can simply very narrowly look at the automotive industry more widely, right? So suppliers as well as, as manufacturers. And there, understandably, there will be, first of all, huge impact and huge changes. Uh, But it's true that depending on how it's done, we can actually see some reduction in some jobs. Understandably, suppliers who only today make components for an internal combustion engine car will go out of business. And that has happened throughout the history as technologies change and progress happens. For these people, it's really important to put in place a clear transition support. So that's at that level. However, the analysis that actually we we all working on as part of the mobility platform together with you shows that if we are smart about what we do with batteries and if we produce batteries in Europe, we actually can offset a lot of those negative impacts. So that's one. And second uh, way of looking at this very briefly for me is more important. We can't just look at one uh, on one comparing an electric car with a combustion car. Electric vehicle is not just a powertrain. It's an ecosystem, right? First of all, it enables the whole energy services agenda with all the utilities and, and vehicle to grid. It enables everything to do on the charging side. And therefore, there's companies like, like Greenway and like so many others that are establishing themselves around Europe and bringing jobs and a lot more on the software and electronics. When we look at this as a broader picture, we see that there will be a lot 
more jobs than the jobs that will disappear. And actually, with the mobility platform, we looked all across the supply chain and we saw that a million new jobs can be created in Europe by 2030. But we need to put right support today for these jobs to materialize. We need to skill people especially, right? So 800,000 people uh, are coming out of the internal combustion industry. We need around the same amount of workers just for the battery industry in Europe. So if we match this demand and supply and put in place the right educational training incentives, we can make it work. Good. And geographically as well. Of course, that's important. Look, obviously, this is a much, much broader and complex topic. Hopefully, we can look at it in greater detail in a future episode. Last question, Julia, I know you need to go, is what are the upcoming sort of milestones and timelines around the pieces of legislation that we were discussing? What should listeners be looking out for to track the status of these? So the big date, we don't yet have the date, but the big timeline is end of June. End of June is when the first 10 legislative proposals, so that's that's a bit of a, that's a package. It's quite a package, yeah. 10 laws are being proposed uh, under Fit for 55 or 57 package. So that's really crucial. And after that, as of autumn, it goes to the European Parliament and governments for their discussions. But up to the end of June, I think you will really see May and June, there will be so much noise events, discussions, and opportunities to influence that. So if any of our listeners are in the space or you want to write to your politician, you know, and I don't know, ask them to actually support a phase out of internal combustion engines and EVs, the time is really May and June. And there's a number of things happening. So don't just wait until end of June if you want to shape it. Shape it now. Perfect. Julia, thank you so much. That's our show for today. For those insights, for a lot more of the products and the materials, the publications, reports, targets, and everything else that Transport and Environment puts out, you can find them on transportandenvironment.org. You can always reach out to us on the podcast at aaron.fishbone at greenway.com or tweet at us at GW Operator. Uh, and Julia, what's Transport and Environment's Twitter handle? At TransEnv. At TransEnv. Julia, super. Thank you so, so much for being here. We really appreciate your time, uh, your expertise, your insights, and all of your hard work that you're doing to push this agenda and make sure these ambitions become law. Do you have any final words you want to say? Well, look, it's super exciting times. I honestly believe that this, uh, you know, finally named FIFA 55 package is actually an opportunity of a generation uh, to set our climate ambition um, in the right trajectory. After that, the next opportunity will be after 2030. So let's get busy. The opportunity is now. Julia, thank you so much. I also want to thank our producer, Katharina Urban, and thank all of our listeners for being here with us. This is Aaron Fishbone, wishing you many happy and safe electric kilometers. There's so many things to say. <laughs> Such a challenge to do it all in a short period of time. Super. All right, you got to go. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. And stay safe. <laughs>